Tonight, we're going to look at the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And, and I think the end of the letter is, is interesting because this is his last chance to speak to the Galatians. Now, let me remind you, if you haven't been tracking with us um, this year, Galatians is written in the middle of a conflict between Paul, the Apostle Paul, and the Galatians, the people that live in this area of Galatia. And the way it came about was the Apostle Paul was passing by this area when he came down with an illness. We don't know exactly what the illness was, but it waylaid him there. And while he was there, he preached the gospel to these people. They came to faith in Jesus, and it had a remarkable effect on their lives. Um, Earlier in the letter, Paul talks about how they treated him like he was an angel of the Lord, like he was Jesus Christ himself. So great was their love for him. But then Paul got better, and he left, and he moved on to another area where he was intending to go preach the gospel. And then some other people came in behind Paul and started troubling the Galatians because they began to teach them false ideas about God and about his grace and about how you can have a relationship with God. Paul had taught them rightly, and this is the message of the Bible from beginning to end, that the only way you can have a relationship with God is if he rescues you, if he comes to you in his grace and his mercy. We don't have anything to impress him with except sin and unbelief. But he's not thwarted by that because God comes to the rescue. That's the heart of the gospel. In some ways, it's, it's been said that the whole gospel is, is carried in that one word, but. In another one of Paul's letters, the letter to the Ephesians, it says, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. So if you ask the Apostle Paul, what is grace? He would say it's God making dead people alive, and it's a surprise, and it's unexpected. That's why the whole of the gospel is summarized in that word, but, but God. We were here, but God, and now we're not. But these false teachers came in and said, you know, what Paul didn't tell you is even though God rescued you by his grace, once you get into a relationship with God, well, things are a little different. When you get into a relationship with God, then you better really keep your nose clean. You better be fired up for God all the time so that he's not always disappointed in you if you really want blessings in your life. There's a lot of that still going around, I think, where people give grace with one hand and they kind of take it away by saying, well, I think God's kind of disappointed in you because you don't really read the Bible often enough and you don't really pray like you should. It's pretty easy to get people who have a relationship with God to feel pretty bad about their end of the bargain, so to speak. And Paul says, oh my gosh, these false teachers have, have really brought real wreckage into the lives of these Galatians by teaching them this false idea that even though you begin with grace, this is the false idea, you have to then be kind of a super Christian from then on. And in Paul's day, what it meant to be a super Christian was to get circumcised, that's kind of a big deal, and eat all of the Jewish diet and do all of the Jewish cultural stuff. If you really want to impress God, you gotta do all that stuff. That's what these false teachers told Paul. So Paul hears about this, 
And he hears that the Galatians now think that Paul lied to them. You ever been in that situation where somebody's told lies about you and now the person that loved you dearly now is estranged from you? Well, in the first century, that was not something you could like call them up or text them, Snapchat, whatever. Like for Paul, it, who knows how long it took for him to hear about this. And so what he does then is writes a letter, not knowing how it will be received. You need to understand that to understand this letter. Paul is angry when he writes this letter. That's actually a good thing for us because living 2,000 years later, the anger of Paul helps us see what was really important to the early church. What was worth getting angry about? And it's this issue of grace and the true doctrine of grace. I know doctrine is a dirty word for some people, but Paul says it's worth getting angry about when people distort the truth about God and his grace. But he writes in this letter that I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, Galatians. I love you so dearly, but he says, I'm perplexed about you and I don't know what to do. Now that's pretty astounding. The Apostle Paul wrote more words in the New Testament than any other person. More of the books, right? And he says, I don't know what to say. And here we get to the end of the letter, and this is his last shot to say something, not knowing how this letter is going to be received. So let's see what he says. I think we'll start at verse 7, because I did cover the first six verses already. Verse 7 of Galatians chapter 6. This is God's word. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. We think that he'd been dictating the letter, and at this point he says, give me the pen. And he writes. Those who want to impress people He's talking about these false teachers, by means of the flesh, are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for these sobering words. Even not understanding everything that's in here, we get the sense that this is weighty. And we pray, Lord, that you'd send your spirit to help us tonight. Take this in. Learn what it means to boast in the cross and why it matters. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he begins in a way that's a little surprising, isn't it? He's been talking all about grace, 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 grace. And then he says, don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Does that surprise you? Because it seems to be what I was talking about, taking away grace. I mean, isn't the whole point of the gospel that we don't get what we deserve? What's Paul talking about here? Well, I don't think he's saying, do right and God will bless you. Do wrong and he will zap you. If, if that's what he means, then the, the whole letter doesn't really make any sense. And whether people agree with what Paul's saying or not, there's no doubt that he's one of the supreme intellects of the Western world in history. His influence is huge. So we need to give him at least the benefit of the doubt that he probably isn't just undermining everything he said in this letter. So how might we understand what he's talking about here? Well, I think what he's saying here is, is this, do you know what sowing is? Sowing is planting, reaping is harvesting. And he's using this, this image to say, just as in the physical world, if you plant tomatoes, you don't get apricots, you get tomatoes. The same thing is true in the moral or the spiritual realm. That what you sow, what you invest in, has an impact, has a consequence. There's a connection. Things in the universe are connected and organic. Now, I think most of us believe that if you plant tomatoes, you get tomatoes or no tomatoes, but you don't get something else, right? But I think a lot of people in our world believe differently when it comes to moral or spiritual things. A lot of people believe that, you know, there's not really right, wrong. It really is about what you believe and what someone else believes. And if you're particularly, if you're sincere, then you really shouldn't be talking about this person's right, this person's wrong. But Paul doesn't have that idea, does he? He says, God is not mocked. That if you sow to the flesh, you reap destruction. And if you sow to the Spirit, produces love, joy, all the fruit of the Spirit that was talked about in the last chapter. Now, I, I think, you know, it's worth pointing out, sincerity does not make something true. Sincerely believed error is still error. And I think actually most everybody believes that, right? I mean, you know that what you believe doesn't change the physical realm. I don't care, you know, if you don't believe in gravity, it still affects you. And you know that because you don't go around jumping off of tall buildings, generally, right? And, you know, I, even people that, that say there are no moral absolutes end up having to still live in the real world where there are. You know, maybe you guys know about John Cage, and his music, right? A lot of music people, right? And you know, his, 
his music, right, is an attempt to say, you know, that, well, you know his piece where he puts the music up on the piano and the sound of the audience kind of is the music, right? Randomness. He's, he's arguing for a view of life being random. And yet, you may not know that he, on the side, loved to hunt mushrooms. <laughs> believe me, believe me. Yeah, that was his hobby. If music's your life, I guess you gotta have a hobby. So he, he hunted and ate wild mushrooms. And believe me, he did, not, he did not apply the same random principle to which mushrooms he ate, right? You saw that movie, right, Into the Wild, right? It doesn't matter, you know, how free you think you can be, reality's still, reality's still reality. And there is such a thing as poison. And if you eat poison, you die, right? Well, Paul says that there's an organic moral order, too. That the way you're living, and even what you're believing, what you're trusting in, what you're boasting in, to use the language that he's going to get into in this chapter, is sowing something. The way to look at it is this. Yes, grace is the way, is the way of the gospel. It's the way that you become in a right relationship with God. However, God's laws are still real. And if you break God's laws, they break you. They're not suspended. Because God's law is an expression of the one who made you. I mean, I've told you before, one of my favorite verses is Isaiah 54, 5, where it says, your maker is your husband. Man, if you can keep those two ideas together, you'll go a long way towards understanding Christianity. The one who made you is the one who loves you dearly and married himself to you. And some people think, well, he just loves me. He doesn't really care about how I live. Of course, I don't know anybody that loves that doesn't care how the one they love lives. But some people have this idea that God loves us so much that he doesn't care how we live. No, your maker is your husband. And in his law, he says, this is what I made you for. God is not mocked. There's an interesting little verse in Numbers 32, 23, where it says this. It basically, um, Moses says to, to this group of people, your sin will find you out. You can't continue to sow destructive things without it having an effect. God's laws are not his attempt to spoil your fun. They're not busy work. They're a revelation of what we were made for. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. And remember, moral and immoral people both, according to the Bible, sow to the flesh. In other words, try to be their own savior. Some people try to be their own savior by saying, well, I can keep all the laws that God's made, and I'll even add some more to show him how really great I am, so that he'll have to love me. That's kind of the religious way of trying to be your own savior. And then there are other people who say, well, I don't need a savior because I get to make up my own laws. Nobody can tell me how to live. But there, it's just another way of avoiding what you were made for, which is a loving, dependent relationship upon the one who loves you. And here's the thing. When he talks here about sowing and reaping, here's the really important thing to understand. 
So many of the things that God says are bad for us don't feel bad right away. That's why I think this image is so important. Sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping doesn't happen right away. Right? God says it's bad for you not to forgive, even though it may really feel good for a while. God says it it hurts you to not be generous, though it may not feel like that for a while. There are some things that really seem right. Well, the, the proverb says there is a way that seems right to a man, and it's not, it's a gender neutral term, it's women too. There's a way that seems right to us, but in the end leads to death. Very few of the things God says we're not to do feel bad right away. Sin generally feels good at first, but eventually enslaves you. And what that means is, when you're thinking about life and how you live your life, you need a longer perspective. That's part of what sowing and reaping means. We're living in a fantasy world if we think there are no consequences tomorrow for the way we're living today. It's so easy to look at the immediate results. And what does Paul say? That's why we become weary in doing good. Because sometimes doing good doesn't seem to work at least not in the short term, right? So you see the connection? Like, it, it, that's not just a random verse, don't be weary in doing good. Like, oh yeah, I should remind them of this and just tack it on. No, it's, tech, it's tied into this. If life generally follows this pattern of sowing and reaping and you don't taste the consequences right away, then one of the things that means is not only bad things don't affect you instantly, but good things don't often result in immediate change. And so don't become weary in doing well. I think when Paul uses this weary word, he shows how hard it can be to sow without reaping or harvesting for a while. And the other thing that this sowing and reaping means, when you see a law in the Bible, I'm talking about the moral law, like the Ten Commandments and how you're to live and how you're to love, you now know the general reason, even if you don't know the particular reason for it. Why is it bad to covet? Well, you may have some ideas about it, but I know the big reason is because you weren't made for it. You weren't made to be obsessed with things that you don't have. It hurts your heart. Why is it bad to lie? Because God created us to be in a community with people that we could trust. And you know how bad it feels when that community is broken. The Ten Commandments are the ten conditions upon which true, beautiful community depends. They're not just ten ways to put us back into slavery. Now, don't think of verses 7 through 10 as an add-on to Galatians, because actually, it's really a summary of what Paul has been talking about the whole time. In other words, what does it mean, think of the whole letter of the Galatians this way, what does it mean to sow gratitude for the gospel of grace in your life versus sowing works righteousness? Now, what does that mean? It means, what are you depending on? What what is the, the regular conversation you have with yourself? Everything I have, Paul would say, is because of God's grace. He says these sorts of things all the time. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Everything you have is a gift. 
Like that, oh, I love that line by Lecrae, every breath is a birthday. I love that line. When you sow that kind of truth into your life, it gives you ballast to weather storms. But when you sow lies into your heart, when you regularly tell yourself lies like, I've got to perform or I don't matter. I've got to look good or what's the point? When you sow those lies into your heart, it makes you insecure and it makes you bitter. Why does it make you bitter? Well, it makes you insecure because you feel like this is what really matters and I can't do it. I just can't do it. Or you feel like this is what matters and I'm doing it, I'm killing it. But my life isn't turning out the way I want. Somebody's gotta take the blame. It's not me, because I'm killing it. So it must be God. He's not rewarding me the way I deserve. When you sow works righteousness, you either live with insecurity or bitterness toward God, depending on how well you think you're performing. It's inevitable. So this is what Paul's been talking about in the whole letter. What are you sowing? Are you sowing gratitude for the gospel of grace? Or have you gotten sort of off path and now you think, well, I started with grace and that was good to get me started, but now I can take it from here and I can impress God. Just give me a chance. Paul says, when you do that, your life is going to be marked by insecurity and biting and devouring one another and you'll lose all your joy. That's what he's been talking about the whole letter. And that brings us to boasting in the cross, which again is not disconnected for this. When Paul has his last shot, here's what he wants to say. Careful what you're sowing. And what does he want us to sow? Boasting in the cross. And look at this. He says, he takes the pen and he says, now look at me. I'm writing in huge letters to focus us where he's focused, on the cross. And again, this isn't necessarily the most popular idea in our world because most people today say it doesn't really matter what you believe. Don't talk to me about doctrine. What really matters is how you live. And Paul says, actually, no. The reason I took the pen to write in big letters is that you need to boast in the cross, not in how you live. He actually goes so far in verse 14 as to say, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an oath. That's swearing an oath. He's like stamping on the ground right there. It's very strong language. Paul doesn't say that he boasts in the ethics of Jesus. Love your neighbor. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't say that he boasts in the miracles of Jesus. He says the thing of central importance is the cross. This is actually Jesus' attitude as well. I, I can prove it to you. You know, after Peter finally confesses who Jesus is, the disciples were kind of clueless. You, you get this, right? Um, my friend Mike Card likes to call it the, the motif of misunderstanding. It's all through the Gospels. They just don't quite get what's going on. But finally, at Caesarea Philippi, Peter gets it. Jesus says, who do, who, do, who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, very good. Flesh has not revealed this to you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, but your father. And then at that point, Jesus says, okay, you get it. You understand who I am. Now, I need to explain to you how I need to go to Jerusalem to die. And, and Peter says, no, no. And Jesus 
does not respond, well, Peter, you can have your belief and I'll have mine. <laughs> hey, Peter, you can believe what you want about why I came and I'll believe what I want. No, he says, Peter, you're in the grips of Satan. His best friend. He says, I hear Satan talking through you, trying to dissuade me from the thing that matters most. Jesus was not a pluralist, even with his friends, right? In fact, it's the attitude of the whole Bible. Tim Keller pointed this out years ago. I heard him give a sermon where he talked about this. You know, if the Gospels are seen as mere biographies of Jesus, they're really lousy biographies. They really are. Consider the Gospel of John. You barely mention the birth of Jesus, barely mentioned. Half the book deals with the last week of Jesus' life. Half the book. It's very unbalanced. And to make matters worse, I don't know if this ever bothered you, the very end of the book, in John 21, 25, John says, basically, there were so many other things that Jesus did that the world couldn't even contain enough books to write it all down. The end. <laughs> well, actually, he says, but I have written these things that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. The end. Right? And you're like, what? You spent three years with Jesus, part of his inner circle. You heard him talk about all kinds of things. And you spent half of your book focusing on the last week of his life and his death. Like, John, we needed some of that other stuff. And John says, no, you didn't. I gave you what you needed. I focused you where the focus needs to be. You know, when I was, was uh, younger, there was this big movement. Everybody wore these little WWJD bracelets. Are you all... Old enough to remember that? Yeah? What would Jesus do? And that was like considered like the most important question about the Christian life. But here's the thing. If that was the focus of the Bible, the Bible would have included a whole lot more discussion about Jesus' ethical decisions. The Gospel of John would have included a lot more information for you to know. What would Jesus do in each and every situation? Instead, half the book is focused on the last week of his life. Do you boast in the cross or the flesh? Paul says those who don't get it, these false teachers, the circumcision party, avoid the cross to avoid being persecuted. Now that's interesting. Why does preaching the cross bring persecution? And the answer the Bible regularly gives is because the cross is offensive. Why is it offensive? Does it offend you? The cross offends everyone who's trying to be their own savior. And the way of healing comes through facing it. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, a very bizarre story, it's in Numbers chapter 21. So I believe that Numbers was written by Moses. I believe the four, five books were written by Moses. Moses tells this story about how the people in wandering in the desert were murmuring against God. They were really feeling like he couldn't be trusted and they start murmuring about it. And so God sends poisonous snakes to bite the people. Now, that's not just a random thing. It actually ties back to the creation and the fall. Because it's the same sin. And God's actually wanting to show them, this isn't just some random thing, the same sin is still in your heart. You don't trust that I'm good, which was the issue in the garden. Right? So it's not random. But then what's really interesting is Moses cries out to God to help. And do you know what God says? He says, Moses, 
make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and tell the people to look on it. And when they look on it, they will be healed. Now think about what a weird thing for God to do. Like the snakes are on the ground, but you're supposed to look up. The snakes are still there, by the way, because Moses said, God says, whenever the people are bitten. Like he doesn't remove the snakes. And, and as a matter of fact, if you think about it, he actually requires them to look at the thing that's killing them to find healing. That is what the cross is all about. And that's not just my wild flight of fancy. Jesus himself says this in John chapter 3. You know the, the verse that everybody knows, you must be born again, right? That story with Nicodemus, Jesus refers to Numbers 21. He says, I am the one who will be lifted up. And when people look to me, lifted up, and he's talking about the cross, because all through John's gospel, whenever he talks about being lifted up in his hour, he's talking about the cross. Like the cross is the thing that is our shame. The gospel doesn't say take an end run around your shame and just, just be happy that God loves you. No, the gospel says look at the thing that's killing you. Face it and see in that the grace of the gospel. The cross is both your security because it shows God's love, but it's also the thing that should humble us to the dust because it shows us what we deserved. So at the same time, it tells us that we're worse than we believe we really are because you didn't just need a little slap on the wrist. You didn't just need a little course correction. You deserve death and hell. But you're so much more loved in the gospel than you've ever dreamed could be possible because Jesus took death and hell in your place. And Paul says, boast in that. It's a weird thing. He doesn't say believe it. He says boast in it. He says relish in it. Make much of it. Do you boast about anything? Kind of, you know... You want people to know what's really great, what's really beautiful. That's why I love the way Isaac Watts talks about his dying crimson. It's a beautiful image, but it's also an ugly image. And isn't that the heart of the gospel? It's the most beautiful picture and the ugliest picture, that the innocent Son of God would bleed on a cross. But it's also the most beautiful picture imaginable. Now, a lot of people don't like this boasting in the cross. It's exclusive. You've got to believe in something and even find it beautiful and wonderful. They think, well, as long as you're a good person, you should be able to have a relationship with God. But look, don't you see, that's just as exclusive. It excludes all the weak people. It excludes all the bad people. The cross welcomes everyone but it offends everyone. It offends the good people. Say, I don't want to be in the same category with all those people that can't get their life together. I don't want to be in the same category with those people. The cross says you are, and there's no other way. So how does the cross become power? How do you come, how do you come to, to love it? You don't just grudgingly accept the message that it brings. You're worse than you realize. You deserve death but you're more loved than you hope because Jesus took that death for you, you begin to boast in it. You begin to sow that. You know, do you ever think about how bizarre it is? Think about this. I know there's probably people here that have a cross either on their 
chain or on their earring or something, right? What a weird thing that is. Because in the, in the first century, the cross was an execution instrument. When I was your age, I ran across this guy, A.W. Tozer. Still like a lot about him. And he had this great little um, essay on the old cross versus the new cross. He talks about the Bible cross versus the cross that we wear. He says the old cross wore men, but the new cross we wear, like jewelry. And it's not to mock those that are wearing jewelry, okay? But listen to this. He says the old cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel and hard, and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life he offers is life out of death. It stands always on the far side of the cross. Whoever would possess it must pass under the rod. He must repudiate himself and concur in God's just sentence against him. Paul says the world will be dead to you if your boast is in the cross because it will not have power to worry you or entice you if your boast is in the cross. If something else is controlling you, if you're boasting in something else, it has power over you. Whatever you boast in, however you defend yourself, that's what you're boasting in. And you say, I'm not like that guy, at least I'm not like her. You're boasting in something. What makes you count? If it's not the cross, it's enslaving you. Finally, this last little verse is so fascinating. Paul talks about his scars. And I think I would just say this last thing. Look for mentors with scars who still have joy. You can find a lot of mentors with scars. But Paul is remarkable. A mentor with scars who still has deep joy. And what's interesting is the scars he has are because of standing up for the freedom of the gospel. The persecution that he regularly gets is not just because he's a Christian. You read the book of Acts carefully. It's because he proclaims that Gentiles can have a relationship with God without having to become Jewish first, and the Jewish leaders keep stirring things up. That's why he has these scars. That's why he bears great sorrow in his heart. The church and all the troubles is because of the truth of the gospel. Find those people. Do you know people like that? Maybe you're a person like that. Maybe you bear scars for the sake of the gospel. If so, share your life. It's a kingdom resource. But if not, find scars who know what it means to suffer for the gospel, but still have joy. Because it's so hard to suffer for the gospel and not feel like it earns you rights over God. To suffer for the gospel and to have joy only comes when you boast in the cross and you realize everything I have, every breath is a birthday. Everything I have is a gift of his grace. Let's pray together.